Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, welcome to this evening's Lionel, Rem Lionel Robbins Memorial Lecture, the third of this year's Robbins Lectures, delivered by Professor David Lapson from Harvard University. Since Professor Lapson has already delivered two of these Robbins Lectures the last couple of evenings, already well known to you will be David's wit and charm and intellect and erudition. His lectures and slides have been peppered both with scary mathematical equations and equally scary and colorful neuroscan photographs of human brains. And as an outside observer, I had hoped we would also get to see beautiful well-fit, toned people working out in a gym, or actually of them not working out in a gym. I understand that although no written evidence exists, even physical massages were contemplated and discussed in previous evenings. Having seen David give his lectures, you will not be surprised that his research not only hits the top technical journals with frightening regularity, but his writings are routinely taken up and described in outlets like the New York Times, in both the business and lifestyle sections, and considered and argued in thinking people's web blogs all over the world. Now, I myself have unfortunately not been able to attend the earlier two lectures, but I have closely followed the podcasts afterwards, as well as the online global consciousness discussions that ensued later each evening on Facebook and on blogs everywhere. <laughs> and as I had expected, some of these blog entries have been fulsome in praise to the point of embarrassment not least David's, being the humble, modest individual that he is. You've all seen what David Lapson at work is like. You have seen the kinds of intellectual risks that he takes. To paraphrase what I once heard someone say of a Nobel Prize winner, drawing an analogy with athletic accomplishment, what David does is dazzling intellectual acrobatics and spectacular, courageous, high-wire economics, all performed without a safety net. This evening, David will apply some of that awesome intellectual weaponry to attack the question of sticky biases and the curse of education. So, David... I will disappoint you after that introduction. So, um, I, I don't know how many of you have been here for the previous two uh, lectures, um, but I'm going to pick up on some of the themes that we've talked about already. So far, I've been telling you about decision makers who make mistakes or who have certain quirks in their decision-making processes. Economists are obviously interested in how all of these individual psychological factors translate into behavior in real-world markets. Ultimately, 
None of that really matters if when you take it into the marketplace, it all goes away. So tonight what I want to discuss is how many of these biases and how many of these behavioral propensities translate in equilibrium in real markets. So we began with intertemporal choice. We then talked about investment, typically in a comparative statics or in a partial equilibrium setting. It was the investor interacting really in a savings with a savings plan and not necessarily in a full-blown competitive market. Tonight, I want to talk about how those markets interact with these investors, with these decision makers. So I'm going to begin by talking about the protective nature of competition. In some settings, in some special settings, competition is going to be highly protective and will actually enable us to survive all of the mistakes that we're prone to make. But then I want to talk about many other settings where those mistakes actually change the market equilibrium and produce outcomes in which the individual consumer is, in fact, hurt or affected by their biases in equilibrium in markets. And hopefully, if we have time, I'll even get to a little bit of empirical evidence. So tonight, I'll be mostly talking about theory, uh, and I'll show you some evidence at the end. So let me begin with kind of the good case. Imagine that you have a very bizarre theory of the world. For whatever bizarre reason, you believe that an apple, eating an apple, will save your life. So you're willing to pay, let's say, $10 million to have an apple. The good news is that that bizarre belief is not actually going to jeopardize your life. Because when you go to the marketplace, even if you falsely believe that apples are worth $10 million, in a competitive equilibrium, you'll still be able to buy that apple for 35 cents. So in a lot of cases, our screwy beliefs, our mistakes, will actually not hurt us when we get to equilibrium in a marketplace. But now let's talk about all the other cases in which, or some of the other cases, in which our errors actually do translate into harms in equilibrium in the market. Let me take you back to the discussion of quasi-hyperbolic discounting. And I want to remind those of you who weren't here for the first two lectures how this basic framework works. So bear with me for the next minute while I review. Let's think about a consumer who has these preferences. So I've got a total utility function, and I'm going to represent this simple three-period problem to make our life easy in the analysis as a utility that can be decomposed into current utils, utils in period two and utils in period three. And we're going to assume here that beta, the short-run discount factor, is a half, and delta, the long-run discount factor, is one. So this individual says, if it comes today as a util, it gets full weight, if it comes tomorrow, it gets half weight. And if it comes in day three, it also gets the same half weight. Full weight today, half weight for day two and day three. Now, as this individual goes through time, she's going to keep applying iteratively this discount function. So when she gets to period two, now she's going to put full weight on day two and half weight on day three. And when she gets to day three, the end of this problem, obviously all that's left is period three, which will get full weight. Now, obviously, these are dynamically inconsistent preferences. The self one says that date two and date three are equally valuable because they're both in the future. Whereas self two says, no, period two counts fully and period three only has half weight. These individuals don't agree about how to weight or these selves of the same person don't agree about how to weight utils. Now, let's think about a naive agent who incorrectly thinks that her future selves 
are going to do what she wanted them to do in the first place. So this is the person, like I think I had revealed myself to be, who said, yes, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. I'll go 150 times in a year. And then it's worth paying $1,000 for that gym membership because I naively think that I'm going to follow through on my good intentions. So let's think about that kind of agent in this setting. So the period one self believes that when time period two arrives, the self in period two is going to implement these preferences, waiting date two and date three equally, as opposed to what will actually happen, which is these preferences. Now let me say one more thing in terms of leading to this and leading up to this example. What would self one, from this perspective, want to happen in the future? And let's imagine for the purposes of our conversation tonight that the, rel the relevant interest rate for day one, day two, day three is basically a zero interest rate. In other words, there's no real return between one day and the next. The return is so small that we can approximate that return as being zero. So what would self one want to happen in this world? Well, given these preferences, logarithm and the one half weighting here, if you take a few derivatives, you'll find that what self one wants is for the consumption she has in period one to be twice as great as the consumption she has in periods two and three. So she's going to use all of her resources and try to consume twice as much in the first period as she's consuming in periods two and three. That's the consequence of that very simple optimization. Okay, problem is set up, let's go to work. So let's begin with an endowment for this naive agent. She has an endowment when she begins life with, let's say, a set of income streams over these next three periods. So in period one, she'll have income of three. In period two, she'll have income of two. And in period three, she'll have income of one. I'm just setting those up. We could imagine a different stream. This particular stream will enable us to solve things in a relatively elegant manner. Let's imagine that this individual is not alone in the world, but is interacting with another agent who we'll call the arbitrageur. The arbitrageur is an LSE graduate who knows a lot about finance, who knows a lot about the world, and is in the business of taking money out of the pockets of unsuspecting citizens. So what is the arbitrageur going to do when the arbitrageur interacts with this naive consumer? Well, the arbitrageur, let's say, makes the following offer to that consumer. I know you have, the arbitrageur says to the consumer, this endowment. Income in period one, income in period two, income in period three. Can I trade with you? Can I give you something instead? What about I offer you this alternative? This income in period one, this income in period two, this income in period three. These are consumption claims, let's say. So how does the consumer think about that? Well, the consumer might say, look, that's a pretty good deal as far as I'm concerned because when I think about what my old stream of consumption was worth, and I value it this way, I take log three plus one half of log two plus log one, I realize this new set of consumption is actually just as good. And we could sweeten it just a little bit to make it even better. So this consumer says, yeah, I'm very happy to trade with you, Mr. Arbitrageur, and take this sequence in exchange for the sequence that I started with. And that sequence, you can write it out um, using more elegant notation, but it ends up being these real numbers. And I can evaluate it as log of 
the first term, 2.91, plus one-half log of the second term, plus one-half log of the third term. So our naive consumer is willing to make this first trade. Now she goes through her life, and now that she's done this trade, she consumes what is available to her in that first period. She withdraws, say, from her bank account the money that's available for consumption in period one. That would be 2.91, which is 2, the square root of, of 3 over the square root of 2. She consumes that in period one, and she moves on to period two in her life. So now we get to period two, and she's once again approached by the arbitrageur. And the arbitrageur says, I know that you currently have this remaining endowment for period two and period three, but I'd like to trade with you one more time. And what I'm going to offer you is 1.84 for period two and 0.92 for period three. And the consumer says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why? Because when she evaluates those two options using her one-half discount factor from the perspective of period two, she says the log of the first term plus one-half times the log of the second term, I'm just reading off these two terms here, but using the more elegant mathematical notation, is just as good as what I had a moment ago before you made me this second offer. So she says, yes, let's execute that trade. And she ends up, at the end of the day, consuming 2.91 in period one, consuming 1.84 in period two, and consuming 0.92 in period three. And for those of you who remember where we started from, that's a puzzle. It's a puzzle because this consumer began with a claim of three in period one, a claim of two in period two, and a claim of one in period three. And through this sequence of trades that she deemed one at a time to be desirable, she managed to trade this sequence for this sequence. And this sequence is everywhere worse. She managed to basically take what she had and trade it for something that was worse in every single period, even though along the way, each trade felt like it was in her best interest. Now, we know what this is called if we're an economist. This is called a Dutch book. Basically, this naive consumer who began with this and ended with this got ripped off. This naive consumer took her wealth and passed some of it for free onto another party. We don't think that people should do this in the real world. And yet, this model tells us that this consumer actually did do this. So here's an example of a consumer entering a marketplace and really getting hurt in that marketplace. But there's some very special assumptions that went into this analysis. What we basically were studying here was an interaction between a naive consumer with these quasi-hyperbolic preferences and an arbitrageur who had a monopoly relationship with that consumer. By monopoly relationship, what do I mean? The arbitrageur had no competition as the arbitrageur made offers to this consumer. Every offer was a take-it-or-leave-it opportunity which the consumer could say yes or no to. Now, in the real world, arbitrageurs don't have a personal relationship with each consumer. The arbitrageur is going to have to compete with other arbitrageurs for the consumer's business. So let's now think about whether this example of a kind of really um, contrary marketplace will survive generalization to a world in which arbitrageurs have to compete. So what is a competitive equilibrium? Competitive equilibrium is a sequence of prices and actions such that all markets clear and all agents maximize their perceived interest. They might be mistaken. In this behavioral world, in this psychological world, people sometimes make mistakes. 
So consumers are maximizing their perceived interests given their beliefs. Theorem, competitive markets eliminate Dutch books for time-separable preferences, which are the kinds of preferences that we're studying today. So in a competitive market, what I said a moment ago is not going to apply. In a competitive market, these Dutch books are all going to vanish. So here's another example where markets are actually highly protective. My ability as an arbitrageur to take money out of your pocket is only going to exist when I have a monopoly relationship with the consumer. When two arbitrageurs, Richard and I, are competing for your business, we're going to end up being unable to engage in that sequence of trades that enabled us to extract, to extract money from the consumer. So in the monopoly case, you began with a endowment of 3-2-1, and through the sequence of trades, you ended up with an endowment that was dominated, 2.9, 1.8, 0.9. In a competitive market, the sequence of equilibrium trades will look like this. 3-2-1 becomes 3-1.5-1.5, becomes 3-2-1 again. That's the equilibrium of this game. So we have some more good news. Maybe markets are really protective. Maybe we don't need to worry about all of this behavioral stuff, all of this psychological stuff. Because when you put people into markets, they don't pay $10 million for apples, and they can't be Dutch booked. Maybe it's all going to be okay thanks to the competitive equilibrium. Well, unfortunately, we have a second observation, which is going to skewer all of that optimism. Uh, competitive markets do not eliminate bad outcomes. And in particular, in competitive markets, it might be the case that when I let an agent trade, that agent, as a consequence of her trades, isn't Dutch booked. That's not going to happen. But as a consequence of her trades, she makes herself worse off in every period of her life. Not because she acquired a dominated portfolio of consumption, but because her discounted utility ended up falling as a consequence of the trades that she makes in a competitive market. Now, you might think intuitively, yeah, sure, that makes a lot of sense. If I take a consumer who's really impatient for reasons that are kind of contrary to her best interest, and I let her take a bunch of trades, she might squander her wealth. And that's really the intuition behind this observation. So let's take a look at how, how this plays out. Let's think about another consumer, this time with an endowment of... 5 over 2, that's her endowment for period 1, an endowment of 2 for period 2, an endowment of 3 halves for period 3. That's her initial set of claims in the world. So what does she do? She begins with this endowment, and then she has a trade. What does the self-1 agent want to do? Well, the self-1 agent wants to have twice as much consumption in period 1 as she has in periods 2 and 3. So the self-1 consumer says, yeah, let's engage in a trade, and pile on consumption in period one, which I give full weight to in my discount function, and accept half as much consumption in periods two and three. But then what happens in period two? The second self says, no, I'm not happy with equal consumption in periods two and three. I want to pile up consumption in period two and accept less consumption in period three. So the consumer who began with this set of claims to the world ends up consuming three in period one, two in period two, and one in period three. And lo and behold, that set of equilibrium trades, which is not a Dutch book, there isn't a dominance relationship here, nevertheless makes this consumer worse off in every period of her life. Now, why is that? Well, self one is not happy because there's so much waiting on period, there's so much 
there's too much consumption in this period relative to this period. There's far too much consumption here relative to this very little amount that's left for period three. So self one isn't happy about that. What about self two? Well, self two began with this endowment, a claim of two and a claim of three halves, which became a claim of two and a claim of one. So self two is clearly unhappy because her future got worse. And self three is also clearly unhappy because she began with a claim of three halves and ended up with a claim of one. So here's a case where allowing this person to trade, even in a competitive market, makes her worse off. And this is going to very generally be the result in these kinds of models. Giving these agents access to markets may make them worse off. And in fact, very generally, if these markets have a lot of liquidity, have a lot of flexibility and very little commitment, it will always be the case, if the horizon is long enough, that these consumers are going to be made worse off by letting them take sequences of income and trade them in competitive markets. Okay. Now, how might a competitive market fix these problems? What are these consumers looking for? They're looking for a little bit of self-restraint, something like a pension, something like a savings plan that prevents them from squandering all of their wealth too early and ending up with very little wealth when they get to the end of their life or their, you know, let's say, retirement period. So if markets could provide commitment, these consumers would be doing pretty well. They could acquire these commitment assets, these assets that enable them to smooth consumption instead of piling too much of that consumption on early in life. But these commitment contracts are going to be really, really hard to provide in the competitive marketplace. Why is that? Well, if a contract is going to work, it has to have a lot of flexibility. It has to say, look, if you get sick, you're allowed to consume more. If your kid has to go to school and you've got to pay for it, you're allowed to spend more. If you need to take that vacation to go to a relative's funeral, you're allowed to, you're allowed to spend that money. For these urgent and important events, we need to build flexibility into the contract. That makes it complex. Moreover, if we're going to optimally commit ourselves, we need to be sophisticated. We need to actually foresee all of these reversals and buy the commitment that's going to help us tie ourselves to the mast. But that requires sophistication and not naivete. And as we've discussed, there's a lot of evidence that consumers and speakers have a lot of naivete in their behavior. Moreover, these kinds of commitments might be unraveled by a third party. Suppose I acquire a commitment contract with Richard. So I say, Richard, please hold my income or 10% of it every year and then pay it back to me as a pension when I retire. That's great. I'm kind of tied down. I'm going to have income when I retire. Jonathan comes over to me and says, David, I understand you have this huge claim coming to you in retirement. Can I give you a loan? And all of a sudden, I'm consuming now at age 40 against the claim that I've had for age 70. And it's very, very hard to regulate this market, to prevent people like Jonathan from coming in and giving, this is actually the story of the subprime market, and giving me liquidity too early. Giving me liquidity that might not be in my best interest. Finally, we might worry about commitment from kind of a philosophical or even behavioral perspective in asking, what happens if people write commitment contracts and they make a mistake? What if they sell themselves into indentured servitude and realize only later, I don't want that commitment. It's not good for me. I know I'm in America now. Thanks for giving me $40 for the, for the ride across the Atlantic, but it was a mistake. Please reverse the transaction. No, you're locked into 40 years of servitude to this coal company in Virginia. Sorry. Um, so 
We don't want to let people write commitment contracts that might actually be contrary to their best interests. We're worried they may make mistakes. They may incorrectly commit themselves as opposed to committing themselves in ways that are desirable. So in this world, it's true that competition and competitive markets protects people from certain kinds of mistakes. You won't be Dutch booked in a competitive market. I cannot actually reduce your, your claim in every period if I drop you into a competitive market. But I can give you access to all sorts of loans and intertemporal transfers that make you fundamentally worse off. So worse off that every self agrees, this sequence of experiences was bad for me. So that's the quasi-hyperbolic story, a rather negative story relative to the traditional acclaim that we economists give to markets as producers of efficiency and producers of maximal social welfare. I want to move on to a second way that markets can fail. My collaborator, Xavier Gebex, and I call this the curse of education. What's the idea here? Well, a lot of consumers are confused about all sorts of things in the world. An economist might guess that the marketplace would have an incentive to educate them and get them to do the right thing. Look, if I can convince you that being at firm B is bad for you and I can offer a better product at firm A, I have an incentive to advertise and teach you to be a smarter consumer. It's profitable for me, it's profitable for you. Surely the market provides incentives for producers to educate ignorant consumers and help them make better choices, enabling the educating firm to divvy up the new rents, some of which go to the consumer, some of which go to the firm. The problem with this argument, which is a very intuitive argument, you find it in all sorts of economic um, journal articles without a proof, is that very often educating consumers actually doesn't make them more profitable. It makes them less profitable. It doesn't produce a rent that the firm can take. It eliminates a rent that firms were taking. And as a consequence, firms do not have an incentive to engage in this kind of education. So here's examples of the kinds of confusions that I believe firms do not have an incentive to eliminate in the marketplace. For example, a firm could say financial markets are efficient, but then the firm would have to say that means that we provide financial services that aren't of any value. A firm could say that echinacea may not reduce symptoms of the common cold, but how does that help any firm in the marketplace? It only hurts the firms that were selling echinacea. Bottled water is no better than tap water, at least in the U.S. I don't understand why people in Europe drink bottled water. Um, in the U.S., um, there's no excuse. The water in our cities is spectacular. The water in our cities is perfect. It is delicious. It is good for you. And yet, we're spending billions of dollars on bottled water. But who has an incentive to educate the public into understanding that the billions of dollars they're spending on bottled water are useless? No one's going to make money by educating the consumer in that way. The city of New York does not sell its water to the public in a way that creates a profit motive for educating the public to stop buying bottled water. Bank accounts. A typical bank account holder pays $90 per year in add-on fees. Well, what firm has an incentive to get that message out there and to educate employees, or to educate rather uh, bank account customers to stop paying all of those fees? And I'll show you an example of that in a second. I'll work out that model for you. As we heard the other day, um, what about financing deals? There are terrible financing deals in car dealerships. Again, who has an incentive to say, you can get a better deal? 
All of the car dealerships would love to offer you these bad deals first. By educating you that better deals exist, all that I'm helping you do is get a better deal from the place you were already buying your car from. The better deals are available simply for the asking. Okay, now there are three kinds of profit-lowering education that I've been implicitly touching on in these examples. Commodification effect, which is that when I educate you, I basically turn you into an individual who's more able to appreciate the competitive environment and use competition to remove rents that firms are taking from you. That was the case in the financial markets example and the water example. There's the devaluation effect, which is when I tell you that echinacea has no value, I'm basically reducing your willingness to pay. No firm can profit from that reduction in willingness to pay. Many of these examples have that property. And finally, there's a cost salience effect. If firms are taking dollars out of our pockets, if I tell you about that process, that's going to help you avoid that firm taking dollars out of your pocket, but it's not necessarily going to win you as a customer to my firm. And that's true in the banks and the car financing example. So let's see, and I've done a lot of hand-waving at this point, let's see a fully worked out example of this with no Greek letters along the way. I'm going to try to keep this uh, very simple. So this is joint work with Xavier Gebex. We wanted to study goods that have shrouded attributes. And there's a lot of goods in the economy that have this feature that the goods are accompanied with all sorts of hidden fees that are very, very hard to see at the time you begin a relationship with the firm. So consider buying a printer. Almost nobody looks at the thing that is really costly about printers, which is the ink. Just recently, Kodak came out with a product that began to exploit this. But before Kodak had that product, the whole industry was basically saying, buy my printer for $35. Don't look at the ink price, which, believe it or not, if you use the ink as the firm recommends, is about $1,000 over the four-year life of that printer. $35 printer, $1,000 of ink, but no one's looking at the ink. And this is actually documented and worked by Robert Hall. So we're going to show you that in these kinds of markets, it's going to be an equilibrium that add-ons will be shrouded. They're going to have large markups, and that will be true even in competitive markets, even when demand is price elastic, and even when firms can freely unshroud these prices. We're going to show you how robust these shrouding uh, strategies are on the part of firms and how education will not enter these marketplaces as a, strat as a strategic uh, approach that firms are using to try to win customers. So there are lots of markets with these shrouded fees. Uh, wherever you look, you see them if firms have an ongoing relationship with a customer. So let's think about an example just to illustrate these ideas and kind of show you how these equilibria work. Assume that consumers, for now all consumers, we can generalize that, do not foresee add-ons and that firms have absolutely no market power, a fully competitive market. Imagine that we're studying banks, and a basic bank account costs, it's uh, with Northern Rock, I could make that, or U.S. Trust in this example, $40 to provide. So the bank has to provide services to their customers. Those services are costly. Let's imagine that it costs you $40 a year to provide these services as a bank. The bank also has a lot, lot of add-on services, which are basically free to provide. For example, there's a minimum account balance of 200 pounds. If you go below the minimum account balance of 200 pounds, you have to pay me 30 pounds. That's a basically free service for the bank to provide, but a service that's going to generate a lot of revenue for the bank as customers often flip back and forth across those boundaries. So banks are going to extract fees because of all of these kind of arbitrary little rules they insert 
that enable them to take revenue out of consumers that may not be anticipating all of these little rules along the way. Add-on services, let's say, can be priced, in this example, illustrative, to generate fees of $90 from these naive consumers. Consumers aren't thinking about it, they're not aware of it, whatever. Over the course of a year, they're going to pay $90 back to that bank. But let's assume that sophisticated consumers, like I think many of you are, understand how this market works, and you're spending your time avoiding these add-on fees. It doesn't take a lot of effort to basically manage your account so that you don't trip up and pay these fees that are gratuitous along the way. But let's imagine that there are very, very few of you, because of course at LSE these days, you're taught all about banking fees. That's the key result of your education here. So there's only, what, thousands of, a couple thousand LSE students and a couple uh, billion other people in the world, six billion others. So you're a very small fraction of the total, total population. So what's going to happen in equilibrium in this marketplace? Now, banks are going to compete for customers because banks can really pull money out of their pockets, right? If I have you as a customer, I can take $90 out of your pocket every year. So I'm thrilled to have you as a customer. How do I compete to get you? Well, I've got to bribe you to come in the door. In the U.S., these bribes are very popular. It's toasters, it's gift certificates, it's CD players, it's iPods, whatever. Banks are giving their customers free gifts just for opening up an account. Now, that should make us very suspicious. Um, so what do naive customers do? Well, they get their $50. That's the gift to them from the bank. They then pay $90 in gratuitous fees over the course of that relationship. So their net payment to the bank is $40. And lo and behold, that's exactly the cost that the bank has of providing these banking services. That's the cost of being in business. So in competitive equilibrium, this is the variable number that the banks are basically competing over, and they're going to be pushed to bribe consumers with exactly $50. So that in competitive equilibrium, banks have a zero profit condition. They break even. Now, so far, so good. Competitive equilibrium, no one's winning here. Banks are basically pr producing a combination of bribes and pickpockets to get their $40. But what are the students of LSE doing who understand how to avoid these fees? They're doing great because the sophisticated students or the sophisticated customers are getting a cross subsidy. They know to avoid these $90 of extra fees. They manage their account. They watch it. So they get the $50 subsidy, the $50 bribe, and now they're getting a $40 set of bank services in exchange for no payment whatsoever. And in fact, they're getting a $50 bribe along the way. So the LSE student receives $50, pays no fees, let's say, gets $40 of services for free. The LSE student is, in essence, getting a net subsidy of $90 in this marketplace. Now, is this equilibrium robust? Shouldn't some firm enter this market and start educating consumers and telling them what a ripoff this is all about and winning those consumers' business and making money accordingly? Well, the answer is no. And let's see why this kind of education is not going to arise in this marketplace. So what would happen if a competitor bank said, we're going to have no markups. We're going to have none of these add-on fees. We're not going to do any of this gamesmanship. We're going to efficiently just charge you $40 for opening up a bank account with us. We have to pay our bills, of course. So we're going to eliminate all the fees. We're going to pay an annual open an, open an account charge, which you can see, which is $40 and we're going to get rid of the bribe to come and be our customer. And we're going to tell you in advertising 
This other ba bank, U.S. Trust, is ripping you off, is charging you $90 for add-ons. Shouldn't you avoid those payments? Well, this strategy, though it seems kind of sensible, and it looks like if you were looking at this market, you might advise a bank to do this, is actually going to win absolutely no customers. Now, why is that? Well, let's think about the different consumers in this market. First, let's think about naive consumers at U.S. Trust. What are they doing? They're receiving $50 in bribe. They're paying $90 in fees. And so their net payment to the bank is $40. What about the sophisticates, the LSE students who are at U.S. Trust? Well, they're getting the $50 bribe, and they're paying nothing to the bank. So their net payment to the bank is minus $50. What about the customers at this new transparency bank? Well, they're all paying $40. If you're a sophisticate and you know how this market works, where are you going to do business? You're going to stay at U.S. Trust. So in this equilibrium, transparency bank earns no customers. Education doesn't do anything for transparency bank. In fact, all that education does in this analysis is it turns customers from being naive clients of U.S. trust into sophisticated clients of U.S. trust and consequently hurts U.S. trust along the way. But it doesn't attract customers to this other bank. So what is happening here? Sophisticated consumers want to pool with myopic consumers. They want to go to the same bank that the fools are going to because those fools are getting all sorts of deals that attract them to the bank. The sophisticates can get those deals and avoid paying many of the accompanying fees. So you've heard people say it's good to stay at a hotel with an expensive spa or an expensive golf course as long as you don't use it. You're basically getting the services of the hotel and not paying in the form that most of the people at that hotel pay for those services by buying these extra services. Sophisticates get the free gifts and avoid the high fees. So advertising will make consumers sophisticated, but it may not attract them to the low-cost, low-add-on-fee firm. Another example of how advertising actually won't, or how the marketplace won't eliminate these behavioral biases. So what are we seeing if we summarize all these results? Firms set monopoly prices for add-ons. Add-ons are profit centers, right? The bank is making its money off of the add-on fees. The, you, you go below 200 pounds, you pay a fee. It's not making its money on the upfront charge. The base product may be a lost leader. Having a bank account is not profitable. What's profitable is the fees that, are trip, that, are, that consumers trip up. Firms shroud these add-on prices. They don't want consumers to see them. Uh, and firms in equilibrium do no education, even when education is free. Now, this is a cost salience effect. By making cost salient, we turn banking customers into less profitable consumers or less profitable customers for these banks. So no firm has an incentive to undertake this education, even though it might actually be socially efficient. So the curse of education, educated consumers prefer to buy from firms with high markups to take advantage of these cross-subsidies. Educating consumers will not arise in equilibrium. It doesn't profit the institution doing the education, though it does profit the consumer. Okay, so there's another example of how the market may not actually eliminate these biases, even though we have all sorts of inefficiencies within the equilibrium that we're studying. Now, here's a third example. 
of the kind of robustness of these irrationalities in market equilibrium. This is work, again, with Xavier and Hong Yi Li. Let's imagine that we have a standard classical demand model, a la McFadden and others, where consumers observe the true utility value of a good, the true price of the good, but it's noised up. So they don't actually get to see each of these components in isolation. They kind of see a noised up version of the net value of a product. So I don't know, is that TV a good deal or a bad deal? I can't exactly tell you. I only have a vague sense of whether it's good or bad because I observe this net value of these three terms, including this noise term. Let's assume that the noise term, epsilon, has a scaling parameter sigma that represents kind of the scale of the noise and a distribution, a density, f of e, f of epsilon. Let's give consumers a very simple strategy in this marketplace. Let's assume that consumers simply pick the good that has the highest observed value. So they take their net signal and they simply pick the good that has the highest perceived value. Now, there's a famous result due to Proloff and Salop in 85 that says that the markups that will arise in equilibrium in these economies take this form. Now, don't worry about the math here because we're going to quickly get past it. Um, we simply have a result due to Perloff and Salop 85 that tells us how markups are going to be related to the noise, the scaling parameter, and N here, which is the number of firms competing in this marketplace. And there's an equilibrium existence result due to Kaplan and Nailbuff. What we did in our work is to characterize the asymptotic properties of these markets when you get a lot of competing firms. So this is like the Adam Smith limit case. When there are a lot of competing firms, what do equilibrium markups look like in this world? We can characterize those markups for a large N, and we can also characterize the demand function in these economies, which will be logistic. So let's now ask the interesting question, which is how do markups in these economies respond to competition? And it turns out it's going to depend critically on the distribution that characterizes that noise, that vagueness or that confusion on the part of the consumer. When there's uniform noise or, or Cournot competition, the markup, the price minus the actual cost, right? This is the price of the good, this is the cost of the good, will be proportional to 1 over n, where n is the number of competing firms in this industry. So that's really good news. If this is the world we live in, a lot of competition will produce really low markups. Price will be close to marginal cost, C. But there's another case that's kind of well-known in the literature, which is when the distribution is logistic or exponential, then the markup is, in fact, completely insensitive to the number of competing firms. Now, that's kind of a remarkable result. Let me say that again. As you add more and more and more and more firms to this marketplace, Markups do not go down. Price remains above cost by the exact same amount, no matter how many firms are in the industry. Now, the intuition may be beyond, may, may, may be unavailable for a moment, but you can easily see the argument. There are two strategies for firms in this marketplace. One strategy is to cut price, to move price all the way down to marginal cost, and thereby try to win customers. That's the intuition that we all learn as economists. As there's more competition, firms cut price, and price falls all the way to marginal cost. But it turns out, for this completely sensible case, I mean, who knows whether the density for this noise is logistic or not, firms have another strategy that becomes appealing. 
which is to raise price. Why would you raise price? Because even if you don't get many customers, those customers that you get will be very, very profitable. The few suckers who come into your store and buy that overpriced cell phone are going to give you a lot of money. And so you're not selling a lot of those phones, but you're making more money on each sale. And it turns out these two motives are perfectly offset for this case, the exponential case. Well, most economists think that uniform noise and exponential noise are kind of extreme cases. What about more realistic densities? We could look at bounded power law noise. We could look at Gaussian noise, a normal density. Here's exponential noise. What about log normal noise? All possibilities. But with the formalism in these results, we can evaluate them. And let's now think about a very sensible case. What about a normal density for noise? What about Gaussian noise? Just the standard old bell curve, for those of you who haven't had stats. When you have a bell curve, which represents people's confusion, sometimes they evaluate things too high, sometimes they evaluate things too low, and their confusion is captured by a bell curve. What happens in equilibrium in these marketplaces? Well, good news, markups are proportional to 1 over the square root of log n times sigma. Now, why is that good news? It's good news because at least n is showing up here, and it's in the denominator. Higher competition, lower markups. Maybe Adam Smith was right after all. Maybe we can return to our micro textbooks reassured. Competition cuts markups. But there's a little bit of bad news here, too, which is this function, 1 over the square root of log n, is a really, really slowly moving function. Let's see that. So here's the case of Gaussian noise. Here's the markup in this column. And here's the case of uniform noise. And as we said before, when you have uniform noise, when people are making mistakes that are uniform between two bounds, markups are proportional to 1 over n, where n is the number of competing firms. So in that case, markups are just, you know, let's, put, let's normalize it to 1 for n equals 10. As we go up by each order of magnitude, markups fall by an order of magnitude. So that's the world that your principles of economics instructors want you to think about, a world where competition destroys markups. Very efficient. But with Gaussian noise, as you can see, as we go from 10 firms to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000, markups are not being decimated here. In fact, markups are barely falling. As I go to 1 million firms competing for your business, the markup is still 32% of what it was with only 10 firms. So yeah, it's good news. Higher N cuts markups. But it's bad news because the effect is really, really weak. Adam Smith was right qualitatively. I don't want to put this all on him, actually. He's a, he's, obviously, he's a hero of all of ours. It's unfair. Um, but you know, we economists were right qualitatively. But quantitatively, these effects might be really weak, which may explain why in a world where there are 10,000 mutual funds in the U.S. and probably another 10,000 in Europe, or Europe has a smaller market, so it won't be 10,000 in Europe, but 10,000 in the U.S., you still have a lot of markups. You're not pushing down equilibrium prices to a point where the price is very close to marginal cost C. So, can firms exploit consumer confusion in equilibrium? Yes. Markups are going to be proportional to noise, which is the confusion. Will competition decrease markups? Barely, even for the Gaussian case, which has to be a leading case for us, right? You've all studied a little bit of stats. Central limit theorem is on our minds. The Gaussian case is not a weirdo case. That's got to be a case we take seriously. 
For the Gaussian case, markups are proportional to 1 over the square root of log n. And that's bad news for efficiency in, 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 in equilibrium. How should firms maximize profits? Well, raise complexity, raise noise. The bigger your noise, the more money you make in these industries, in these models. Will greater competition force firms to reduce complexity? No. If complexity is costly to produce, as I increase competition, as I increase the number of firms in my industry, that gives firms a stronger incentive to add noise to their products. Why? Because they want to find that one nutty consumer who happens to love their $2,000 cell phone. So they end up adding complexity, adding confusion to the marketplace and going after those consumers who are in the far right tail of evaluation, who have gotten the most noise when thinking about that product. Okay. This is a commodification effect. Um, the last thing firms want in these markets is to be a commodity, is to be selling a good that's just like the good that someone else is selling. What they want is highly differentiated goods, even if that differentiation simply reflects consumer confusion. Now, which consumers are making mistakes? There's a huge research program here that really is barely started, which is to try to figure out who's getting the subsidies and who's paying the subsidies in these markets. So this is some work with uh, Sumit Agarwal, John Driscoll, and again, Xavier. We looked at people in 10 markets that we had data for. This, I'm going to show you every market that we had data for. And we asked, who gets the good deals and who gets the bad deals in these markets? Who's overpaying and who's underpaying? And we looked at age, just one variable that we thought was somewhat exogenous. So what are we finding here? If you look at things like interest rates, panels A, B, C, D, E, and F, young people, and this is controlling for every possible variable you care to control for. So risk measures, uh, income, you name it, we've got, the, we've got the variable in these data sets. Um, and all the confounds that might come to mind, we can talk about later. Um, they aren't driving these results. So young people pay high interest rates controlling for risk. Middle-aged people get it right. And as you get older, you again pay higher interest rates. For some of these markets, these effects are quite large. This is basically a 75 basis point decline here between the young and the old. What about fees on credit cards? Again, the young get it wrong. The middle-aged are most prone to get it right, and then the old, once again, start making mistakes. I mean, there's biological reasons why we think cognitive function declines as people uh, reach advanced ages. What about people who are making mistakes and failing to exploit special credit card deals that are filled with traps and extra hidden fees? Well, it turns out the young fall for those traps. The middle-aged, by and large, figure it out, and again, older adults are prone to make the mistake. So it looks like the subsidies are going from this population and this population to this population in these marketplaces on average. Of course, this population of young people is an exception. Now, I've emphasized a lot of negative results, but there's a little bit of good news before I conclude, which is people do learn. So even though markets aren't going to beat the irrationality out of you, through experience, people become better and better and better consumers. So. When people initially get a credit card in the U.S., they pay a lot of fees. Average fee payments for a new card are nearly $20 per month. That's a fee payment, not a card, not, not, a, not an annual fee, just fee payments like late payment fees, like cash advance fees, like over-limit fees. On average, it's $20 per month. But as consumers gain experience with these cards, they discover all the traps. 
and they eventually become wise to them. They eventually become the sophisticates. So here's the picture for three different kinds of fees on credit cards. And here's tenure on the horizontal axis. That must be my favorite control variable. So fee frequency per month. Initially, they're paying a cash advance fee almost 60% of the time on a monthly basis when they get the new card. What about late fees? They're paying a late fee a third of the time with a new card. What about over-limit fees? They're paying an over-limit fee 18% of the time with a new card. But as they get experience, and we're controlling here, this, this is um, controlling for individual fixed effects. As they get experience, they wise up and the fees plummet. So the world is full of agents, some of whom are making mistakes, some of whom are getting it right. And as a consequence, in equilibrium, there are many, many cross-subsidies from the people who don't know what they're doing and are paying into these firms to the people who finally have gotten it right. Okay, so um, I'm running out of time. I'm going to quickly summarize what we did in the last three lectures. So I talked about intertemporal choice. I applied some of those ideas and generalized the debate to discussion of investment. And today we asked to what extent do markets <coughs> mitigate these errors? Or are markets going to enable these errors to perpetuate themselves? And I've given you kind of a mixed story. Sometimes markets are protective. Certainly with learning, people get better. But sometimes markets actually enable us to make ourselves worse off. So a quick conceptual summary. Um, my worldview. People have psychological factors that lead them to deviate from the classical economic model. These deviations can be measured and they can be formally rigorously modeled. And they matter for important economic outcomes, particularly savings and investment for our purposes in these three days. The deviations in general will not be eliminated by competitive markets. We should not expect that the market will somehow clean all this up. The deviations from classical economic theory have important implications for policy. First, because markets don't work quite as well as our textbooks say they do, there is greater role for policy. Secondly, some policies turn out to work a lot better than we thought they would, like defaults. And other policies turn out to work a lot worse than, they, when we, than we thought they would as economists, like financial incentives and disclosure. Again, I'm hearkening back to the previous lecture. But there's a problem in this kind of worldview. These new theories don't precisely tell us how to set policy. They open the door to a policy debate, but they don't really answer the key questions. What should policies be? In particular, who can be trusted to set these critical defaults? Who can we rely upon to do these things? Are we opening the door to a worse set of institutions or a better set of institutions by establishing a world where lots of parties are setting defaults for our best interest? What social welfare function should policymakers use? I've described a world of internally inconsistent preferences, which raises the question, which set of preferences is your true preference? Which set of preferences has normative merit? What should we be trying to maximize? The impatient mesolimbic brain and its preferences or the patient frontal parietal cortical brain and its long-run patient preferences? I don't know. We know that policy matters. We know that it's effective. We know that people make mistakes. But we fundamentally now do not have a theory of what is normatively right for the world because we have handed back and given up, I think, the theory of revealed preference. The traditional theory of revealed preference says that what people do reveals their true interests. 
And hence, we can simply observe their behavior and thereby know their true interests. But what I've tried to show you in these three lectures is that people again and again do things that are contrary to their, to their true interest or do things that are internally contradictory. On the one hand, with this default, I save 10%, and with this default, I save 0%. So what is my true interest? In this market, I engage in a set of transactions that impoverish me. That can't be my true interest. I don't want to be Dutch booked. So what people do is not what they should do or is not what they want to do. And we need a set of models, a new generation of models, that recognizes the gap between behavior and people's normative preferences. And that's, I think, the challenge to the next generation. Thank you, David, for that intellectual tour de force. He's given us deep results on competition, on markets, on choice and decision. These deep results have been told elegantly and lightly, full of wisdom and good sense and good humor. He has provided us convincing anecdote and rigorous empirical evidence. And he has told us some of the ways forwards. I would like now to open the floor to questions. In the interest of time, perhaps we could take three questions at a time, and then, um, and then David will, will answer them. So first question over there, if the mic could move back there. Um, yeah, Bernard Casey from Warwick University. I was interested by your graphs of U-shapes by age, but curving down by experience. You said holding all other things being equal. To what extent is age not experience, and why is age not experience? Um, the second question from Richard Lear, out in front here. You, you, you shouldn't a problem when people's ex-ante preferences are moving from period to period. And that is the puzzle you left us with at the end. How do we choose which of these preferences to use? Why shouldn't we use that ex-post experience? Why can't we think of social welfare as being defined over people's actual experience utility at the end of the day? Okay, the final question in this round from the gentleman in the middle. He's surrounded by people up there, by the way. Yes. All right. Okay. So I agree completely with the questioner in the back. Uh, the U-shape is largely driven by experience, and it's driven by cognitive decline. So today's not the day for this full discussion, but there are two fundamental forces. As we age, we gain more and more experience, and that has diminishing returns. And as we age, sadly, we lose some of our analytic functionality, and that is declining as we get older. Um, these two forces are jointly producing the U-shaped pattern. Richard, to your question, I agree completely. Let experienced utility be our guide. But that still leaves open the fundamental issue. What should the discount rate be?
for experienced utility. Danny says zero discounting. Danny Kahneman says zero discounting. Um, maybe, but measuring experienced utility doesn't answer the question of what the discount rate should be. It just tells us what the static preferences are. And uh, to the gentleman at the top, uh, I agree completely. These examples are illustrative. It may well be the case that the reason we drink bottled water is to signal to others. I think that's not the full picture, though, because in my hotel room, uh, I earlier today drank bottled water. Um, and uh, no one was watching me. <laughs> and, uh, and I sat there thinking to myself, why are you doing this? <laughs> but you're, you Europeans have even reached... In America, I drink tap water religiously. But somehow, I've been infected by your bug. Um, okay. All right. On the second round, Julian Legrand. It was just a query about your um, uh, shrouded uh, attributes example. Um, suppose Transparency Bank uh, is successful in educating, as, as I think you implied in your model, it would educate all consumers, but no consumers would then switch. But as you pointed out, that, um, as I think you mentioned in the sort of sideline, um, uh, that means that U.S. Trust Bank uh, is going to lose money. In fact, it will go bankrupt. Um, and then there will only be one bank left, which is Transparency Bank. But doesn't it make more sense? Doesn't it actually make some sense for Transparency Bank to follow this uh, slide? Okay. Uh, second question in this round. If not, maybe I can exploit. Okay, go ahead. Hi. I had a question on welfare effects because uh, from the lecture on Monday, I got the feeling that the, the problems we have discussed were mostly attributable to lower education workers. But hearing yesterday that also uh, Harvard uh, undergrads could make mistakes, and today that um, uh, we, we can be used, I get the feeling that most, since most of the money should be uh, with people who are uh, highly educated, we should expect lots more noise in the products that are uh, directed at these kind of people. And I mean, even people who are in generally sophisticated can be unsophisticated in some areas. And uh, therefore, I would expect uh, richer consumers to be much more uh, bombed by these uh, uh, noised uh, products. So what would the overall welfare implications be? Okay. A third question from the pink sweatshirt. I'm sorry, that's not pink. It's uh, cerise, so... <laughs> All right, go ahead. Uh, to what extent do you think the criticism that behavioral economists style themselves when, when they think about policy as therapists of the population is justified, or do you think that's criticism? Uh, say that again. Uh, to what extent do you think that the criticism that people like, I don't know, Gulen Pesendorfer make um, of behavioral economists, that they style themselves sort of therapists of the population rather than policy advisors, uh, is justified? Okay. That's the three questions in this round. Save your questions for the next round while David answers these. Yeah, so the question about how transparency might enter this market, it's true that from a dynamic perspective, if they can educate very quickly the whole population or enough of the population, they can switch the equilibrium. <laughs> but of course, if they do that, and we think about this kind of completely transformational moment in the, in the marketplace, then U.S. trust has its own opportunity to change its policy and then compete 
in this new market for the customers that are going to Transparency Bank. So it's not going to be useful for them in either world because in that world, we end up with a commodity relationship where everyone's charging $40 and no one's making any money in that case. So I think however you want to think about this problem, there's no opportunity here for Transparency Bank to do something that's going to actually generate rents going forward. Either they're going to try to peel away a few customers, which won't work, or they're going to educate everyone in the population, break the old equilibrium, and then have a new commodity equilibrium where they again have zero profits. Either way, right? But, but it's not a, it's a competitive equilibrium in the sense that usually you can peel them away one at a time and thereby make money as you go from point A to point B. In this case, those months of initial advertising are fruitless until U.S. trust changes its policy. So, so for, for a long time, um, they're trying to peel away individual consumers, and they're paying for that advertising, and they're not getting any customers. So, so in essence, you're kind of imagining that they're going to make an enormous investment in advertising to eventually attract all the customers who will then instantaneously go back to U.S. Trust once U.S. Trust um, ends up <coughs> adopting this new strategy of charging $40 per client for the annual fee. So, so the usual dynamics of attracting customers won't work here. Profitably attracting customers won't work here. Um, now, someone in the middle asked about education and who, was the, who would or would not be the target of these ad campaigns. I don't think it's obvious whether it should be the rich or the poor or both. Um, obviously, the rich have deeper pockets, so that makes them a better target, but there's not very many of them. Um, their time value might be higher, so they may be easier to confuse because they're not spending a lot of time evaluating the product. On the other hand, they have more education, so they're better equipped to read the fine print. Ten different effects in different directions, who knows? Um, and the charge that we are therapists um, and not policy advisors is not a charge that I've heard before. Um, <laughs> so uh, in the U.S., the, the behavioral economists, and actually in the U.K. too, um, I've, I've had a series of conversations with uh, pension regulators in this country. Um, we talked to the to the policymakers, they bring us in, we advise them, and they do what we say, and you see it in the Pension Protection Act, and you see it in the new pensions rules here. Um, so I think of us as policy advisors, and the person who says that we're therapists, maybe they're in the room, I'm not entirely sure what, what they mean by that, um, but I'm sure it can't be good. <laughs> uh, final round of questions. Maybe I can kick off, if I may. The, I would like to come back to the Julian's question about... Uh, okay, you're going to have to wait. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would like to come back to this question about you know, whether somebody who's not already in the market could see a gain, profit, from disrupting the workings of this imperfect marketplace. I mean, uh, suppose that this, the, initial market, the initial situation was not a zero-profit market situation, but like take the world of pharmaceuticals or the music industry. Now, the people who then argue for compulsory licensing to subvert the patent 900% markup or price over cost, or the people who are engineering MP3 peer-to-peer -peer file sharing services that then undermine the music industry's $50 billion a year business, 
I mean, all those disruptions to the marketplace actually increased consumer welfare. And initially, it was not clear who was going to benefit, who individually was going to benefit from that, that would benefit in a paying way. Because yeah. by virtue of compulsory licensing or by virtue of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, you could not target an individual who would actually pay for this service. But it ended up transforming the marketplaces anyway. So I wonder if there is scope for that kind of action similarly yeah. in these markets. I, if I may, can I then turn to the sure. second and third questions now? So from up there, could somebody take a microphone over here, please? And if the, the third questioner could think about what you're going to ask now. Uh, maybe somebody also in a hoodie, like the previous series hoodie. Okay. Yes, yeah. in the example you, you made uh, before, in when the, the with the arbitrageur and also uh, a competitive market, you say that the consumer is worse off in all the stages of of uh, her life. But in the first stage, when he or when she thinks that uh, she will consume according to, to her plan, that is three, one and a half, and one and a half, uh, she. Uh, her utility depends on, on her expectations, not on the, on the final realization. And then in this stage of, of her life, he's, she's strictly better off. Okay. Uh, final question from up in front here. Complexity is often marketed as choice uh, for consumer goods. Um, do you think there is a trade-off between the two, and where do you think that takes place? Oh, okay. So um, you asked first about entry, and what I want to say here is there are forces that push us into efficient entry, and there are forces that push against. And if there's enough inefficiency in a marketplace, there will be a successful entry. Um, and in the models that we work out, what drives the entry is the degree of efficiency, inefficiency, and also the fraction of sophisticates in the marketplace. So if there are a lot of sophisticates already, this gets kind of back to your question, if there's a lot of sophisticates already in the marketplace, the shrouding equilibrium is going to break away. It's going to fall apart and vanish. Why is that? It's because if there are so many sophisticates to begin with, then the banks that were offering these bribes to come and be a customer can only offer small bribes because so many of the people who are coming are actually ripping off the bank and getting the cross-subsidy. So when the bribes are really small to begin with, it's easier for an efficient alternative firm to enter because it's basically trading off, I'm going to produce efficiency, and in exchange, I'm going to stop giving you the bribe. So when the bribe is small and the efficiency gain is large, you end up getting equilibrium entry. But when the bribe is large and the efficiency gain is small, you end up getting equilibrium shrouding. Someone's asked about expectations. I'm going to move this back. So you're quite right. I love your point. Uh, in fact, in the example that I showed you, if the agent really is naive, it will turn out to be the case that she will expect to have this wonderful future where all her future selves diet and quit smoking and consume appropriately and pay back the credit card debt and retire on a big pension and do everything as they should. And that original self at date one never lives to see <laughs> the um, drunkenness and tobacco use that will, in fact, follow. So uh, you're, you're, you're quite right to point that out. So there's two answers.
to your question. One answer is, back to Richard's point, do we care about the expectation you had at age 20 that was flawed or the true experience that you're going to have in your life? And the second point is, to the extent people have some sophistication, they will foresee this sad future where um, the plans they hold for themselves, the early morning problem sets that they plan to, plan to do, the uh, companies they plan to start, they recognize, eventually they'll recognize and learn that these things will never come to fruition. So even if you take expectations at their face value, um, in these equilibria, people will eventually come to realize that the future is not as rosy as they would like it to be. Um, and finally, the questioner here asked about diversity, and I very much agree. I'm, I'm kind of making a conceptual point here about how confusion masked as diversity can be welfare-destroying. But sometimes diversity is a great thing. And um, to the extent that Sony and Zenith are really making televisions that are meaningfully different, and one person wants it to be black with a silver edge, and some people want it to be silver with a black edge, and that's real meaningful value, so be it. I don't, I don't argue with taste. Okay. I had said earlier that that was the last round of questions, but of course, being time inconsistent, we're now going to have really a last round of questions. So I already have two takers here, so if we could just go through them and then possibly the last person over there. Uh, the ideas you shared with us today seem very relevant to the subprime mortgage problems. I was just wondering if you have any policy advice uh, on how to tackle this. Um, my question concerns the future generations and what we have to do. Um, you say what we have to do in the best of society's interests. What do you think neuroeconomics can tell us about the macro level? We've spoken about the individual preferences um, for the past three lectures. I was just wondering if it has any insights for the general social... And the last question here. Uh, in your past three lectures, you've mainly spoken about how the classical economics that we're learning right now is doesn't really reflect what consumers out in the real world actually think or how they behave. So, in your opinion, how relevant are the economics that we are learning in college right now? How relevant it is in the future? Yeah. Okay, so the subprime, I think that's a great question, and I am interested both in policy and also in what it reveals about human behavior that this crisis has come. Um, I think the interesting thing is why these individuals who had, let's say, a house worth $175,000 or $100,000 um, and had almost no income agreed to lever that house to the hilt and basically put themselves into a situation where any small shock, an increase in the interest rate, the loss of their limited income, would basically push them into default. Now, they were told by the people who offered these loans to them, the mortgage brokers, this is a great deal. And the individual consumer, in so many cases, failed to think through the contingencies. So I think that's a great instance of the, the consumer basically failing to play out the future that is like the future possibilities that would relate to this relationship in this mortgage. And I think we should ask ourselves, who took out these loans? What are their characteristics? Is it about education? Um, is it about the selling? Uh, which, of course, is a familiar problem in, in the UK with some of, the, some of the financial products that have been offered here in the last decade. Um, what is the set of phenomena that led these people to make this terrible mistake. And I think the interesting thing here is not the sellers. Everyone has an interest in making a buck. 
And it happens in, you know, in, in China stores, in, in stores selling um, dishes, I mean, uh, and, and it also happens in mortgage uh, stores. I think the interesting thing is why these consumers were so easily fooled into taking a mortgage that was very, very likely to ultimately be unpayable. Um, so the macro implications. To the extent that discounting is at the heart of capital formation, discounting is a key determinant of how we save for the future, how we should save for the future. Do we force people to save? Do we encourage them to save? Do we let them not save, as we know they won't if we leave them to their own devices? And all of these issues are at the heart of the capital stock, which is at the heart of economic growth. By and large, people think that the reason Asia has grown so much is because of, well, obviously reforms, but on the second hand, capital formation. So to the extent that discounting and time preference lies behind the issue of capital formation, it's going to have important macro implications. And finally, the questioner about the relevance of what we're learning. I've gone too far if I've made you doubt the relevance of what you're learning. I am, at, the, at my heart, a fundamental believer in orthodox economics. I don't think that it is a waste of your time. I think it is, in fact, the most useful thing you'll ever learn. But it's not that you shouldn't learn it. It's that you shouldn't take it at face value. It is not exactly a description of the world. It is a limit point. It is an extreme caricature of the world, which is incredibly useful to understand very, very deeply, and then to water down slightly to return to reality. On that note, we should thank David for an amazing sequence of lectures. Let me, let me, let me thank you. I've, I've had a great time for these three days. You guys have been really great and encouraging in all the conversations we've had uh, after the lectures and around campus. I really appreciate you coming out three nights in a row, often through terrible weather, uh, to hear me rant. Thank you. <laughs>